Welcome to the Monocle Podcast. We are an independent management consulting firm, and in this podcast, we discuss our latest insights and opinions to help you achieve exceptional performance in banking and insurance together. Welcome to the Monocle Insights Podcast. I'm Guy Wilding, Research Lead at Monocle. And earlier this year, the financial sector held its breath as we saw several bank failures on both sides of the Atlantic. Major development in the banking world, the FDIC just reported the California regulator shut down Silicon Valley Bank. This is the biggest failure since 2008. In a shotgun merger engineered by Swiss authorities and announced on Sunday, UBS will buy rival Swiss bank Credit Suisse for more than $3 billion. Now that the dust has settled, it's become clear that Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, two of the biggest victims, suffered from significant failings in their risk management capabilities. So on today's episode, we're joined by Vian Vierts, Director at Monaco Netherlands, to unpack what's been happening in the world of banking over the last few weeks as well as chat to him about building strategic data assets, uh, specifically around balance sheet management, and how that remains a core capability that banks just cannot neglect. So, Vian, welcome back to the podcast. As always, it's great to have you. Thank you, Guy. Appreciate the time. Perfect. So let's start with Silicon Valley Bank's collapse in the United States. Uh, And it seems to be largely caused by an unusual buildup in liquidity risk that eventually resulted in a bank run. What happened in SVB and why are we still seeing high-profile bank collapses um, considering the regulation overhauls that we saw following the global financial crisis uh, in 2008? Yeah, incredible. So this very much feels like flashbacks to 2007, 2008 when I first joined Monaco. And on SVB, I think, Guy, we should probably break this down in simple terms. At its core, banks are intermediaries, right? They take in deposits, which are both a cheap liability and cheap source of funds. Banks then take these deposits and lend them to borrowers and invest them in a range of fixed income securities. So the first source of vulnerability is that demand deposits are redeemable on request. In other words, depositors can withdraw all their deposits from the bank at the push of a button. And the second source of vulnerability is that bank assets such as loans and securities are illiquid. In other words, it's costly to turn them into cash at a very short notice. So banks take in deposits that have a short maturity and invest them in securities and loans that have a longer maturity. The difference in the interest rates between these two it's really, in essence, how banks make their money. Right? So what happens if lots of depositors want to withdraw their money at the same time? Well, then the bank would have to sell its securities to meet the withdrawals. The issue with having to sell securities is that their values might have fallen since they were first purchased by the bank. Uh, this can happen simply because interest rates have increased in the interim. Um, the rise in interest rates, for example, pushes down the price of fixed income securities. So this could potentially mean that the bank does not have enough assets to cover its liability base or its deposits. This is where share capital comes in, or shareholder capital. It helps absorb the fall in the value of securities acting as a buffer. But what happens when this capital is is exhausted? Well, at this point, the bank is insolvent. So central banks and regulators have long recognized the fragility of banks and their susceptibility to bank runs. In the United States, standard deposit insurance is up to $250,000 per depositor per insured bank. And the equivalent figure in the UK is about £85,000. So this reduces runs by small depositors, such as happened to Northern Rock during the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009. Very long-winded answer in getting to why SPV failed. So SPV was a banker to many tech life science companies. So this meant that its deposit base consisted of many customers whose deposits were well more than $250,000 
deposit insurer's upper limits. And to give you an idea, 93% of SVB's deposits were uninsured, and it had the second highest ratio amongst large US banks. This is the first vulnerability. SVB's deposit growth since 2020 had been quite impressive. So the tech boom of 2020-2021 meant that many of its tech customers were raising lots of money from venture capitalists and private equity investors and depositing this money with SVB. As a result, its deposits grew from $65 billion in 2019 to around $190 billion in 2021. So, so the bank invested a large part of its roughly $200 billion balance sheet in long-term assets and funded it predominantly with short-term deposits. A surprisingly high amount of SVB security portfolios at contraction maturities over 10 years, something like 80%. So by contrast, the 166 odd billion of non-maturity deposits used to fund these investments were mostly of very short-term nature and could be withdrawn by clients at any time. So the collapse of the tech boom from November 21 onwards meant that many of SVB's corporate clients were drawing down the deposits in 2022. So the high proportion of assets tied up in loans and held to market securities meant that SVB had not left itself a lot of room for maneuver should deposit outflows increase. So this meant that after exhausting its cash reserves and short-term liquid securities, the bank had to start selling its held to maturity securities. The problem for SVB was that as well as the tech boom coming to an end, inflation was increasing and it was not likely to be a transitory phenomenon as it was called in the beginning. So this meant that the Fed and other central banks around the world had rapidly raised interest rates to tame this out of control inflation. The U.S. Fed's funds rate rose from 0.25% in March 2022 to 4.75% by Fed 2023. This very steep rise in interest rates meant that the low interest held to maturity securities held by SVB dropped in value drastically. SVB's two vulnerabilities really created the perfect storm and, very importantly in this case, highly correlated tech firms became aware of that. I think this very much brings us back to, to I think, basics of good asset and liability management practices which clearly didn't happen at SVB. Secondly, the Basel III liquidity coverage ratio, LCR, applies in the US only to the full extent for banks with assets above $250 billion. So SVB had a balance sheet of around $210-$212 billion as at December 22, which is below this threshold. So it only needed to comply to a less stringent modified version of LCR. And applicable for banks with assets between 50 and 250 billion dollars. So the less fast and consequent implementation of Basel III standards may partly explain why SVB's large maturity mismatch perhaps didn't receive sufficient regulatory attention. The consequences have been uh, quite extreme. I mean, we've seen a lot of commentary around deposit insurance, especially here in South Africa, as we look to implement. So on the other side of uh, of the world in Europe, we saw the merger of Credit Suisse into its biggest rival, UBS, which has caused considerable controversy. I was reading earlier that uh, Singaporean bondholders are looking at suing uh, the Switzerland government over their decision around the merger. But Credit Suisse have had continuous scandals which have weakened them as a, as a bank, as an organization. One of those scandals more recently was in March that they announced there were material uh, weaknesses in their financial reporting controls. In your experience, what have you found banks to be struggling with the most uh, when it comes to regulatory and uh, financial reporting? Yeah, so so banks must ensure that they comply with a raft of regulations: Basel III, Basel IV, MIFID II, BCB two three nine, and many others. So these regulations require banks to collect, store, and report a vast amount of data to regulatory bodies and 
Implementing and maintaining robust and trusted statutory and regulatory reporting platforms can be challenging for banks, largely due to the complexity and changing nature and the, how dynamically these regulatory requirements actually change, but very much fundamental basics as well. Uh, good data quality and integrity. Coupling that with legacy infrastructure does pose challenges for banks to be able to report easily and adapt their data strategies to fulfill these regulatory needs. Of course, failure to comply with regulations can lead to severe consequences. Some of these include substantial fines, reputational damage, and in most severe cases, revocations of banking licenses. Therefore, both senior executives as well as regulators must always have access to accurate and reliable data to make well-informed decisions and manage risks in an effective and timely manner. Recent examples, like you mentioned, Credit Suisse, SVB, the poor decision-making has resulted in catastrophic consequences that only served to further highlight the critical importance I think of accurate and reliable data in the effective management of these financial institutions. Now, Guy, I think what we've seen in the past few decades is the banking industry has really undergone a significant transformation. Due to technological advancements, banks are now offering services that were really unthinkable even a few years ago. Innovations such as fully digital banking, open banking, blockchain-based transactions, artificial intelligence, advanced analytics have become very commonplace in the pursuit of advancing and expanding services that banks provide to the clients. However, in the race to embrace these new technologies, I do sometimes feel like banks have seemingly forgotten the importance of the building blocks for decision-making, strategy execution, and risk management, which we like to refer to as defensive data strategies. Now, the aims of defensive data strategies are to minimize negative outcomes and risks, including at a minimum compliance with regulatory and fiduciary requirements. And while, while these strategies may seem mundane and unexciting compared to the novelty of technologies such as AI, they are nevertheless the building blocks upon which trust in the system ultimately rests. Right. So this forms the stable base. I think what banks struggle with is the interplay between defensive data strategies versus your more offensive data strategies, which is your AIs, more your insights-driven client analytics, revenue generating strategies with finite resources. And there's always this fight for resources and where banks actually spend their energy when it comes to building and executing on data strategies. So I think this is this is some of the challenges that we've seen banks and even some of our clients and struggle with very much over the last few years. I mean, having a look at those defensive data strategies, a, a core part of that is building the data that allows you to make critical decision-making, um, having those decision-making capabilities. And we look at that holistically and that banks should have that um, as, a, as a building block, like you mentioned. What are some of the most common blind spots or inefficiencies that uh, you're seeing in, in the industry around that? So when a bank gets into a tough position, or leading up to that, um, when critical decisions need to be made, banks and their executives and their risk managers need the correct information at their fingertips to move quickly. The same goes for regulators. Regulators also need to have these, these pieces of data, these reports, to be as accurate as could possibly be timelessly. I think that's something that that is that is very much become very much more apparent with the failure of these banks and, and the slight turmoil that we've seen in the industry over the last few months. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it sounds like there's a massive need for agility, but with that, uh, reliability. And that only comes from having your fundamental uh, defensive strategy, like you'd mentioned, um, and, and really uh, creating a foundation for your data to build everything else on top of. 
So moving a little bit along, we've seen increased calls uh, from regulators for banks to invest in strategic risk management and uh, reporting solutions. And, and so earlier this year, the European Central Bank's uh, supervisory board chair, Andrea Enria, uh, had this to say regarding risk data aggregation and controls in European financial institutions. And the key factor pulling downward pressure on supervisory assessment on the supervisory stance is the persistent weakness of internal controls. We found uh, uh, controls in uh, deficiencies in risk control system, number of findings on the effectiveness of management bodies, uh, in risk management, in compliance, in internal audit functions. We focus a lot also on uh, uh, difficulties uh, in the IT landscapes and in risk data aggregation uh, capabilities, which he deemed very important for risk management. Now, it's clear that effective risk management relies on robust data, uh, which has brought up the argument for getting back to basics, like you'd mentioned, and, and developing what we phrase the monocle as strategic data assets within large financial institutions. Now, you've had extensive experience with these types of projects, uh, specifically around designing and building strategic data assets uh, for balance sheet management and assets and liability optimization. Tell us a little bit more about these solutions and uh, the value that they can provide considering the complexity of uh, implementation. Yeah, so Monocle Solutions, and, and I was fortunate to be part of a of a large initiative with one of the large banking groups in South Africa, um, focus very much on strengthening their defensive data capabilities um, as it pertained to treasury analytics and the reporting platform. Um, so a couple of things here. So through a robust and more forward-looking design, I believe the foundation was laid not to only future-proof the platform to ensure future regulatory requirements to be met within a short time frame, but also leveraged the same defensive data for more offensive capabilities used within the various business areas um, within the bank. The process of sourcing data for analytics within the treasury environment involved gathering information from a myriad of touchpoints. So this involved receiving trade transactional level data directly from various source systems, putting that all together and doing the reporting. So based on some specific regulatory findings around daily LCR and NSFR reporting on a monthly basis, as well as the initiative to upgrade an already existing risk calculation engine and database software solution, the, the clients involved in an initiative to rebuild their current data feeds into the treasury reporting process, very much to ensure data completeness, accuracy, validity, timeliness under the, the guidance from BCPS 239 regulation. So Monocle got involved in this project and through some detailed analysis, discovered some fundamental deficiencies in the way that that data was flowing through the organization. We, we did a re-engineering of the platform as well as some of the, or including all of the franchises and their foreign entities, legal entities as platforms very much focusing and grounding the base for the solution in defensive data sets, right? So what I mean by this, uh, we grounded risk reporting in finance. By doing that, we managed to, number one, leverage existing processes that was in place on a daily and monthly basis required for your statutory reporting, but also providing that trust in the data that was used. So we started with these building blocks we, we then drilled that down to trade transactional level data, enriched this data set. Of course, along the way, building all of the necessary controls and the governance process around it, which provided a full data lineage from transaction all the way through to actual financial reporting. This became very much the centerpiece for regulatory reporting, more so 
this is a, a platform that is now being used widely by the business to actually do analytics, stress scenarios, balance sheet optimization, et cetera. So this was a, a really good example of, of a client that, that invested the time and energy in building a really sound and robust defensive data platform, leveraged for other reasons post the fact, future proofing for new regulatory requirements that, that has come about. So an example is uh, deposit insurance. And so the same platform was leveraged very easily to, to get for deposit insurance from a regulatory perspective. I love the phrase you use, future-proofing, uh, because I think that's the, the real crux of defensive strategy is to put something in that, that has a longevity to it, that's providing value, uh, not just from the, the, the core purpose of putting it in, but actually providing value for further analytics of outside of that domain. Now, last episode, we spoke to Lisa Walthausen around the coordination of multidisciplinary teams to execute on data migrations. So the design and development of a strategic asset liability management data solution would require a similar expansive team uh, like those that we spoke with Lisa. And so that's looking at individuals who have specializations in data and risk and uh, treasury and, and, and finance. So what is your advice on it, approaching an undertaking like this? And, and what is the best combination of skills required to successfully complete such a big project? So firstly, I think what made this specific project a success was implementation of a strategic vision. Right. The project was very much driven from a regulatory perspective, but we took the business with on the journey and showed them the value of what this data platform, really grounded again in a defensive data strategy, could offer them. So I think that this made the, the buy-in from business stakeholders where regulatory requirements sometimes is a bit of a grudge purchase and not a place where, where people really like to, to spend time and resources. From a team perspective and from a project approach perspective, definitely the way to to tackle these larger programs is in an agile and iterative approach. You cannot boil the ocean. You need to start small. You need to show value quickly. That gives business confidence that that you're that you're producing the correct results. It also gives you time to, to iteratively adjust change tact if required. From a team perspective, I think the second point was very good multidisciplinary team spread across both, in this case, data providers, which were the franchises and legal entities, as well as the central treasury function, who was responsible for ingesting the data. What made this extremely successful was the skill set of the monocle consultants deployed across all of the various streams of the project. These included data engineers and people who could do data modeling, who could develop ETLs, who understood the architecture and the solution design so having accountants who can assist and and guide around the finance processes quants quants and financial engineers so to give an example as, as one of the the legs of this project um we actually valued the, the pricing and repricing of financial instruments from first principles to ensure that the data that we provided was actually correct and to re regenerate cash flow. So I think the multidisciplinary teams spread across the various entities working together collaboratively in an iterative and agile approach was definitely one of the, the success factors of this project. Lastly, I think strong program management and something that, that cannot be, be underestimated. When doing large transformation programs like these, you need strong program management to influence, to, to ensure that you've got the necessary buy-in from 
all involved parties to eventually land at a successful implementation, which again is a reusable product that can be can be used for for multiple purposes, not only the initial intent that it was set out for, which was a regulatory requirement. I mean, any initiative to build something like this is going to require a significant vision and buy-in um, across the organization, but also a, an intense amount of resources. Um, so it's clearly not something to be taken lightly, uh, but the benefits are just unmatched like, you, like you've discussed with us. So Vian, it's great as always to have you on the podcast and to get your insights, uh, not just on consulting, but also what's happening in the market. Uh, and, and also just to talk about some of the, the less flashy stuff, but of, obviously the, the fundamental stuff that, uh, that banks are built on. As always, thank you for coming on to the podcast and sharing your insights. Thank you for the opportunity, Guy. It was great talking to you. For our listeners who would like to learn more about what we do at Monaco, you can find all our insights on our website, including our upcoming insight paper specifically on balance sheet management through strategic data assets. Similarly, if you'd like to contact us, you can find all of our details on our website for both our European and South African practices. Visit monocosolutions.com to subscribe for updates. From Johannesburg to London, Cape Town to Amsterdam, Monaco, we design change.